says, but earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet I will show you a more excellent way. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. And Father, we humbly ask as we continue now to worship in this time, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would prepare our hearts to hear the truth that you want to speak to us through the word of God. And that every reason and intent behind why your spirit spoke these things originally, Lord, that we would hear those things in a personal and in a present way this morning. That you'd bless your word and that you would speak now, not through wise or persuasive words of a man, but the demonstration of your spirit and power speaking things to our hearts personally. And we ask this together in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, one of the most common mistakes that we all make from time to time is to lose track of what matters most. Sometimes we can tend to lose focus on just keeping, as we say, the main thing, the main thing. And instead of doing that, we start to focus on minor things as if they are actually the most important. And that's never a good thing when that begins to happen. But the truth of the matter is that is possible even in the spiritual life. We can begin to lose track of what really matters most, and we can start to kind of major in the minors instead. And that can even happen in the way that we live amongst one another as the family of God, or maybe in what we perceive it means to be spiritual, and how we would characterize it really means to be a spiritual person. Well, Paul here seeks to kind of help realign us from God's viewpoint in regards to what matters most. It doesn't really matter what I think matters most or you think matters most what really matters is what does god think matters most and this is really what paul is going to begin to address this morning as he challenges us to consider if our heart is off track and maybe needs a little bit of alignment that god would realign our heart with what matters most and he's going to show us what's most important to god and particularly in spiritual service and even the gifts of the holy spirit is very simply the word love. That that would be the basis, the motivation, the reason that we would walk in the way of love. You know, we know from John chapter 14, Jesus said, I am the way. And, and Jesus is the way. And the way of Jesus, I don't think we would dispute, is the way of love. That Jesus himself was the incarnation, the manifestation of what love was living among us. So we want to be doing what we do or not doing certain things, really foremost for the purpose of demonstrating love towards people and doing what's most helpful. And the Corinthians, sadly, had kind of gotten off track in this area. They had kind of deviated a little bit in regards to what was the main thing. And as we've seen and will continue to see in the chapters ahead, they evaluated spirituality by things like 
knowledge. If you had a lot of spiritual knowledge, you were spiritual. Or they evaluated spirituality by giftedness, if you were very charismatic and gifted. Or by spiritual experiences, yet God's measuring was by a life lived under the Holy Spirit's direction that it would exercise the fruit of love. And that is what God wants to realign them with that awareness. Remember the background, chapters 11 through 14, as we're looking them together, Paul's addressing questions regarding issues that arose among the congregational life of the church at Corinth particularly in regards to the ministry of the Holy Spirit operating among the lives of God's people, how the Holy Spirit operates in his power among the people of God. We saw in chapter 12, verse 7 there, where Paul said that the manifestation or the the idea is the revelation, how the Holy Spirit reveals and shows himself, is given to each one for the profit of all. And then he began to describe, we saw there in the next verses, these different grace gifts, these different spiritual enablements that the Holy Spirit can operate through the lives of God's people so that we can be useful and help one another as God's people and how the Holy Spirit intends to exercise his power as we come together. He said there in chapter 12, verse 11, that one in the same spirit works all these things, these different gifts and ways of serving, distributing to each one individually as he wills. And then we saw in our last study together how he used this analogy of a, a body, just like a human body has many different parts and members and organs and, and each part matters and each part has its role and its function and that we live interdependently we both need to receive as well as supply the thing that we are intended for just like body parts do the same in one body that that's how we function as the body of christ and he left off verse 29 and 30 of chapter 12 if you draw your attention there asking them these rhetorical questions he then began to ask are all going to be prophets and again a rhetorical question is where the answer is implied, right? The idea is the question is to intend to indicate the obvious answer is already there. Are all prophets the implied answer? No. Are all going to be prophets? Of course not. Are all going to be prophets? Are all teachers? Are all workers of miracles? Do all have gifts of healings? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? Again, the idea is we don't all have the same functions. We're not all going to operate in the same gifts. We're not all even going to have the exact same experiences with the Holy Spirit. We're going to have differences, but yet one thing we should do is aspire towards what's addressed next. Look with me in verse 31. He says, but earnestly desire, he says, the best gifts. And yet I will show you a more excellent way. So though there's no one gift that everybody is going to experience, there's going to be variations. We're going to have different spiritual enablements from the Lord to fulfill our purpose as a Christian and to answer our calling for God, how we're to serve in the church or outside of the church in different forms of ministry. We should, however, all be desiring, it says here, all of us, we should all be desiring, it says, to function in the best gifts, Now, that word that Paul uses there in verse 31, the best gifts, if you look at it in the original language, it literally could be interpreted the most advantageous. So the idea there is that we should desire the most advantageous gifts, or it also could be rendered the more useful 
So the idea is we should all desire the more useful gifts or the most helpful or serviceable gifts. Some translations render it that way, the greater gifts which are most helpful. So it seems to be referring to operating in supernatural giftings that are going to bring the most usefulness, that are going to supply the most help, and to seek after those gifts which are the most advantageous to be profitable to help others around us. Now, the question should become, okay, so then how do we know what are the most helpful gifts? How do we determine what are the most advantageous gifts that will benefit the most people? Well, I think perhaps the simplest answer to that really is this, whichever gift is most needed in the given situation. Whatever gift is most helpful in the given circumstance at that time That then is the most advantageous gift. That then becomes, in that situation, the most useful gift. The way I think you could illustrate that is think from the perspective of a tool in doing work on a project, right? Depending upon what project you're doing, maybe what repair you're making, what you're trying to fix or what needs done, right? Those who do a lot of work projects say you need the right tool for the job. And this is the same idea here, right? If, if you have some nails that need to be driven, in that situation, you don't want a saw. You, you want a hammer. You don't want a tape measure. You want a hammer. Why? Because the hammer is the right tool for that job. So in that situation, the hammer becomes the best tool. It becomes the most advantageous tool because of what the need is because of what the situation is in that circumstance. If you need to get a proper measurement on something, now you don't need a hammer. You don't need a saw. You need a tape measure, right? Because in that situation, now the most helpful gift is a different gift. It's the tape measure. Now the most advantageous tool is the tape measure because that's what fits the need that exists in that situation. Well, look, you can apply that same principle to spiritual gifts, Paul says, earnestly desire the best gifts, the most advantageous gifts. It's not one particular gift, though we may wrongly think that sometimes as Christians or wrongly convey that by teachings among churches that, well, this gift, oh, that's so spiritual. If you can do that, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. No, God who cares about love, and that's the whole emphasis of this section, says, you know what the most loving, advantageous, best useful gift is? the one that helps best in the given situation where God wants to minister. So for example, if a person is discouraged, they don't need somebody with the discerning of spirits to tell them what manner of spirit they are of. If they're deeply discouraged, probably the gift of prophecy is going to be the most advantageous and helpful gift that they could speak a word in season to comfort, to encourage, to build them up, right? If you have a person, let's say, who is in need of some assistance. Maybe it's an elderly person or a a widow and they need some repairs done at their house or they need their lawn cut in the summer. Well, look, showing up at that elderly person's house uh, and speaking prophecies over their home is not going to do much to help them. In that situation, the gift of helps the gift of ministry, as it's referred to by the Holy Spirit, of practical service, that's going to be the most advantageous gift. 
right? If you show up to that widow's house and her lawn is overgrown and her lawn needs to be cut and she's too weak to get out there to do it, I can stand there in her front lawn and teach a Bible study. I can exercise the gift of teaching, but it's not going to be the best gift. It's not going to help very much. It's not going to demonstrate love. What she needs is someone with the gift of helps. And again, this becomes the most advantageous gift. If there's a situation that arises, maybe a person is sick or they're suffering or they're terminally ill or they're dealing with chronic pain. If you begin to exercise the gift of speaking in tongues, you can pray over them in tongues all you want. Look, that's not the most advantageous gift. The most advantageous gift is to begin to pray and to to hope that the Holy Spirit would bring the gift of faith and the gift of healing and miracles that, that God would display one of his miraculous gifts to bring healing to that person who's suffering. That's the most advantageous gift in that situation. If somebody has an urgent financial need and, and they're struggling in some way, again, we don't need someone who can prophesy over them or teach them a Bible study. In that case, we hope someone who has the spiritual gift of giving would be able to step in in some way and generously help them out and assist them. If you've got a group of people who need to get something done together, we need the gift of leadership or administration who can rally those people together and get them to accomplish what needs to be done. So again, we should be praying that the Lord would manifest by his spirit's ministry the appropriate gift in the given situation of ministry or whatever the greatest need is, which is a reminder to us of this. It's not always about me or you getting to exercise our thing. What it is more about is what is the greatest need? It's not about do I get to be noticed because I get to exercise my gift because I always want to be on the stage and have the platform and people see me as spiritual. No, what it becomes is in love, what's the greatest need right here? What would be the most advantageous thing to help in this given situation that exists? What's best for others? That is the best gift. And notice what we're told to do in light of these gifts here. He says in verse 31 that we should earnestly desire them he says earnestly desire those best and most advantageous gifts the idea is to zealously desire and actively pursue to be used by the holy spirit it is a good and godly thing to long for opportunity to be useful to god that should be our desire rather than be indifferent or rather than to be passive or not care about assisting and being disinterested in being useful to God to serve people. Instead, we should be consciously passionate and looking for and longing for ways to be helpful. God, in this situation, fill me with your spirit and exercise through me whatever gifting is necessary to be most helpful. And we should be longing to want to be useful to the Lord. It is a good and godly desire. He says, earnestly desire after the Holy Spirit to work through your lives and after after exhorting us in that way to actively pursue such to pray that we'd be useful he then tells us there in verse 31 the latter half of it and yet he says in light of these things he says i'm going to show you a more excellent way one translation renders this yet i'm going to show you a far better way the most excellent way now God is not saying here that the way of operating in spiritual gifts is not good, nor is he saying that the way of operating in spiritual gifts is no longer needed. 
And I don't think that's important or, or, you know, a a healthy way to teach people things either because the gifts of the Holy Spirit are just as essential to the church today as they were when the church first began. We are just as needy and the world is twice as crazy and only going to get worse before the coming of Jesus. We need the power of the Holy Spirit operating in the church just as much or more today. So he's not saying spiritual gifts are no longer needed. We'll just do the way of love now. Forget about spiritual gifts. That would be a contradiction of everything that's being said of the value and the importance of spiritual gifts in all of these chapters in the word of God, which never, ever changes. He's simply going to emphasize that the way of love is the proper highway to arrive at the destination of operating the different gifts of the Spirit amongst us as God's people. Again, the Bible tells us what? That the fruit of the Spirit is love. God says that's how you can tell someone is being fruitful spiritually, that they're plugged into Jesus spiritually. The fruit of the spirit will be love. And look, we'll talk more about this next time. But let me just remind you again, biblical love is not about being sentimental, emotional. I'm not saying that is a component of love. Biblical love is action-oriented, sacrificial, denying of self to do what benefits others. Jesus was the greatest example of love. Jesus didn't come and bring Hallmark cards. Jesus didn't come and be hyper fixated on, well, I don't want to step on anybody's toes or say something that might be controversial. No, Jesus was the epitome of love, and he was very direct. He was very honest. He wasn't rude, right? But he was servant-hearted and sacrificial. He displayed love. He displayed love. That is how love is indicated. Love is indicated by action and here. He's speaking of the way of love, that the greatest evidence of the Holy Spirit working in our lives should be in regards to how we relate to and interact amongst and how we treat other people by the way of love. And think about it. What is a way? He's going to talk about, I'm going to show you a more excellent way here. A way speaks of somebody's path, right? Or the pursuit that they're on. A way speaks of the direction we're going or maybe how we do something. How do you do that? What way do you go about it? So how we go about it, the way we go about it, and even why we do things. So it's even an inference to the reason or the motive behind why we do certain things. And as a follower of Jesus, there is now a higher way that we should be living by, and it is the way of the Lord. And as I said, certainly as Jesus served, the way of our Lord was a way of power. I don't deny that at all. But foremost, it was a way of love. It was love that directed Jesus to use his power in the way that he did, to help people and to serve people. And he did it in a loving manner. It was never to impress people. It was never even to be perceived as spiritual. It was only to impart what would be most helpful to those among them. And the church at Corinth was a very gifted congregation. We've seen that in the letter. The unfortunate thing, which is why these things are being written, is they had kind of lost their way in regards to what mattered most, which was the way 
of love and, and, and having love rather than other fleshly motivations and reasons for why they wanted to see spiritual experiences or why they wanted to operate in the gift. So Paul, as the more mature Christian, steps in here with the pen as the Holy Spirit directs him. And Paul, as the more mature Christian, says, look, it's great that you're gifted there. It's great that you want to be open to the ministry of the Holy Spirit and spiritual experiences. But Paul says, but, but let me show you a far better way than just caring about all the spiritual experience. Let me show you a far better way, which begins with the proper highway to get there, which is the way of love, the fruit of love operating your life by the Holy Spirit working in you, which is the basis, the way, the motivation that should be the thing that's driving all of those things. And this is what the first three verses of chapter 13 address and drive home. Chapter 13 is basically a chapter about the supremacy of love. And it is centralized between chapter 12 and chapter 14, and not by accident, because God is saying the center of spiritual gifts and the operation of spiritual gifts, the very center of it all is love. That's got to be the centrality of it. That's got to be the motive that love is superior to all else. It's the undercurrent for why we seek to operate in the gifts of the spirit and how we serve. So Paul says, verse one, look at it. He says, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging symbol. So here Paul describes for us how it is possible to speak truth and even to speak very well, yet ultimately say absolutely nothing helpful in what you declare. You can speak the truth. I can speak very well, but yet ultimately God says you can declare absolutely nothing helpful. The reason, a wrong heart attitude, a wrong attitude within regarding why we're saying what we're saying, or even the wrong manner in the way that we speak. That is, we speak the truth but yet it's lacking love in the way that it's conveyed. And given the context of spiritual gifts being discussed in the chapter prior and the chapter ahead, it's likely that Paul is referring to those different speaking gifts of the Holy Spirit, word of wisdom, right? Word of knowledge, prophecy, teaching, discerning of spirits, exhortation, maybe even just preaching the gospel message generically as an evangelist. And, or he could also be referring to speaking to God in the presence of other people by exercising this gift, which we'll see more of next chapter, this gift of speaking in tongues, whereby we are praying and, and, and communicating to God, but can be done in the presence at times of other people. And let me just say, all of those are legitimate exercises of spiritually directed speech, and they're all important and essential. So let's consider both. Let's consider first the idea of exercising any of those speaking gifts to speak to people, speaking to people. Paul says, though I speak with the tongues of men or even the tongues of angels. So again, there can be many different reasons that we're trying to speak for the Lord and speak to people, giving a teaching, sharing a prophecy, a prophetic word to encourage someone, giving a word of knowledge or a word of wisdom, Offering insight through the discerning of spirits that God gives to us. There can be many different reasons we speak. Isn't it interesting? Paul even says there, 
or even speaking in the tongues of angels, he says there, verse 1. Now, that's peculiar, isn't it? Is there a specific eternal language that the angels utilize and that Paul's referring to there? I don't know. I guess we'll see when we get to heaven. Or does Paul just mean by saying that in the context of what he's saying there, the idea of speaking in a very incredible, beautiful, and powerful way? Right. What's one of the things that we say if somebody's a really great singer, we may use the, the, the concept, man, they have a voice like an angel. Wow. I mean, it's like angelic when that choir sings. So it could be that Paul is just saying here, though I speak in the tongues or even if I could speak like an angel, the idea there's someone who's an incredible speaker, right? Like a golden tongued order. They're just very polished in their communication. They're very effective as a communicator and charismatic. But Paul says here, even if I can speak like an angel, and he says there, verse one, but I do not have love, he says, that is, I'm lacking love in my heart. Now, that shows us something, that we can speak incredibly and not be doing it because we love people. There are a number of other multitude of reasons that we can be speaking, whether publicly or personally, spiritual things. You know, you, you can communicate spiritual things because you're angry and irritated. And so you want to correct people and put them in their place because you are just so frustrated and angry with everybody who is so rotten and immoral. You just got to and, and you can just speak not out of love, but because you just want to correct everybody. Would you just get your act together? And, and that can be a motive for speaking. We can speak spiritual truths, maybe because we feel it's obligating that we have to communicate. And so we feel obligated and we can do it out of a form of duty. And it just becomes a duty that we're communicating spiritual truth, not really love for people that we're speaking to. We can speak spiritual truths at times because maybe subtly we enjoyed being perceived as spiritual or a person, you know, really enjoys being admired as other people listen to them speak. And, and they have some, you know, sick, distorted thing within them psychologically that they just enjoy kind of wooing the crowd or working up the crowd or hoping for some applause. And, and, and this can be a reason that we speak, not because we really have love as the driving motive of our heart. Or we can just be speaking in an unloving way, right? We've all seen that or maybe been guilty of doing that where we can speak the truth, but it's not being spoken in a loving way. The Bible says, speak the truth in love. And sometimes we speak the truth, but a person can speak and yet be very abrasive in how they say what they say. It may be accurate, but it's extremely abrasive, right? Or even sometimes almost like abusive or hurtful in the way that they convey those things, very unsensitive. It's not building people up. It's actually kind of tearing people down because of the way it's conveyed. So even if I speak very skillfully or powerfully, God says here, but don't have love as the basis or the motive or the manner that I'm communicating. He says there, verse one, I have become, look, a sounding brass, Paul says, or a clanging cymbal. The picture there is a loud, noisy instrument that can easily become what? Very overbearing, not enjoyable, even bothersome to listen to. And he says, look, if I speak like an angel, but there's not love in my heart. Ultimately, this is how I sound to God, like a bunch of loud, annoying noise. Or sometimes that's even how we may sound to other people. The idea is that when we speak, 
but there's not love in our heart or a loving manner to do it, it's kind of like walking up to a person and taking symbols and crashing them continuously right in their face, probably not going to be well-received. They're not, probably not going to be real interested. Could you keep that up a little bit longer? Real, just yes. I'm just getting the rhythm now. No, that's not what's going to happen. Instead, what's it going to do? It's going to shut them down, right? Because it's not only just not pleasant, it's actually now bothersome. It actually is something they don't even want to hear because speech without love can drown out anything good that I'm saying. Speech without love or speech in an unloving way due to the lack of proper love in the, in the heart of it, it can just shut people down. And they shut out what you're saying. It hinders their receptivity. They don't want to hear. They just want it to stop like a loud gong or crashing cymbals in their ears. So it's important to remember this when speaking to people or speaking for the Lord. And I can tell you this, it is very easy to slip into this error. And so we have to stay sensitive to the Holy Spirit and this reality and keep our hearts connected to this truth here. Now, Potentially, as Paul says these things, he could be talking of those speaking gifts. It is likely, given all he's going to say in chapter 14 about the gift of speaking in tongues, that he could even be referring here to the exercise of speaking in tongues. And that could be what Paul's addressing also. Again, tongues, we'll see, is that communication unto God in a language other than our own. It's a supernatural ability to be able to praise or pray to God in a language we have not previously learned, but through a supernatural enabling of the Holy Spirit. And that can be done in the presence of others. We'll see the gift of speaking tongues is not speaking, it says, to men, but speaking to God. But yet, as we're using the gift of speaking in tongues, if someone is, it can be done in front of others in a meeting or in the presence of other people. And Paul says here, if I speak with the tongues of men and angels, in other words, I'm exercising that gift of speaking in tongues. But again, Paul says, but I don't have love in my heart when I'm doing it. He says, if love is not the driving motive behind why I feel led to start praying in tongues in front of a group of other people, if love is not the motive in my heart, I may legitimately, Paul says, be exercising the spiritual gift of tongues. But he says, but all I'm doing is starting to sound like a clanging cymbal and, and a bunch of noisy brass. The idea is I may be having a fantastic time praying and speaking in tongues, but to the rest of those who are in the meeting, I've just become a bunch of noise. And it's noise they can't even participate in. It's noise they can't even connect with. And sometimes, truthfully, just like the crashing symbols, it can even start to become bothersome. It can start to become awkward and uncomfortable for others. Again, if love is lacking as the motive. And it's interesting, we're going to see in chapter 14, Paul's going to spend a whole chapter just to address that issue. Just to address this issue because they'd become a bit order, unorderly and awkward in the way they were exercising some of their spiritual gifts in meetings. And Paul's going to say, that's out of order, and it's not very loving. It's not helping. It's not benefiting. The point Paul's making to us in verse 1 here is that even deeply spiritual or profoundly eloquent speech can become absolutely worthless if love is missing from the heart it's coming from. It has no value to God. And sometimes it even loses its value of how it actually helps other people. Paul goes on, verse 2, to say, and though I have the gift of prophecy. 
and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. And though I have all faith, he says, so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. So here Paul's saying, even though I may be a very gifted person, right? He talks about multiple gifts there. Even though I may be a very gifted person, if love is missing from my life, I'm really not very valuable from God's viewpoint, nor am I really very helpful in regards to doing what's best for others. Paul says, verse two there, though I have the gift of prophecy, that is, though I can receive genuinely a spiritual message from the Lord to be able to convey something to other people that God once said, yet it's possible to do such, he says here, without having love. And as a result, I can speak for God, but if I don't have love in my heart, he says here, then I'm nobody special at all. Paul says here in verse two, if I don't have love, though I can utter a prophecy, I am nothing. The language could also literally be interpreted, I'm no one or I'm a nobody. Now, most people who may be used to speak a prophetic word would probably think they're somebody spiritually, right? That was kind of the mistake that Peter made. Remember on one occasion, Jesus asked Peter, who do people say that I am? He ain't. Who do you say I am? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood hath not revealed that to you, but my father in heaven. Peter, right on. Spiritual revelation. So Peter thought he was on a roll, right? And then Jesus started talking about how he's going to suffer and be crucified. And, go, and, and far be it from now, Lord, not on my watch. Peter thought, I got one spiritual revelation. I might as well give another. And in the midst of it, Peter got himself into trouble. I mean, he thought he was a pretty gifted guy. And Jesus kind of had to, you know, get behind me, Satan. Peter, you're getting way off track now. Your heart's not right. You're just liking people thinking you're having spiritual revelations. But your heart's not in the right place. And so, again, we can receive wonderful things from the Lord and think that we're somebody. But from God's perspective, we're nobody. Because our heart's not right in the situation. And we're not having a heart of love. And as people, it is possible to say the right things, but love can be missing from our hearts. And that's an error. When love is lacking and we're missing that, we're really missing the whole point behind why would God would want to give us something to share with people anyway. From God's perspective, we're off track because we're saying the right things, but our heart's not in the right place. So it really loses its purpose, if it's not driven by love, it was shared in an unloving manner. And again, as I said earlier, Jesus spoke, would you agree? Read the gospels. Jesus spoke very direct. Jesus was, did not mince words. He spoke truth and he spoke very directly and very authoritatively. However, though he spoke very directly, it was directed by sincere love. And that's why he could speak so direct because his love was mingled behind it and it made all the difference. He goes on to say, verse two, next, that, that even great spiritual insights and vast spiritual knowledge is what? Worthless without love. See what he says, verse two, though I understand all mysteries and though I have all knowledge, again, but if I don't have love, I'm nothing. Mystery speaks of, again, as we just mentioned with Peter, revelations. Things unseen, mysterion, the idea is something that's not revealed and then the sheets pulled off and now you can see it. So understanding revelations of spiritual things, knowledge that is having deep spiritual 
you know, understanding of things, having a good grasp on the word of God and spiritual truths. You have a, a, a deep understanding about the realities of God and his word and his ways. And it's possible to have revelation from the Lord, to receive things that God shows you things. Again, word of knowledge, he gives you a revelation. Word of wisdom to share with someone maybe. The discerning of spirits and yet be lacking in love for the people that it pertains to help. And you can receive a revelation, but if you don't really have love for the people it was revealed to you for, he says, then ultimately that is actually not going to be done in a loving manner. It's actually going to hurt more than it's actually going to help. And we have to be careful of this reality because Paul wouldn't say these things if they weren't possibilities we can all be guilty of. And he says, this is a problem. Or we can just be someone who knows a lot of spiritual information, right? Vast amounts of spiritual truth. They can quote Bible verses backwards and forwards. And yet some people can quote Bible verses backwards and forwards. And they are some of the most unloving people in the church. They have tons of biblical knowledge. They know the Bible backwards and forwards. And yet sadly, some Christians can amaze people by how much spiritual truth they know. And yet those same people tragically treat people horribly. And they're mean-spirited or they're selfish or they're trouble starters in the church. Oh, they know the Bible well, but sadly their heart is in a completely wrong place. And so that knowledge then becomes something that's contradictory. Again, if we don't have love, all that info means nothing. And sometimes, sadly, we can even possess great amount of spiritual knowledge. And really what can begin to happen is some people love the knowledge and love being right and telling everybody how they're right and others are wrong more than they actually care about doing what's right to help people in life or taking into consideration what is best for this person in the current time or situation or what's the most loving thing I can do so they say receptive. Some people think what makes them spiritual is their knowledge. And that's a tragedy. Great understanding and deep insights is not what makes a person spiritual. Some people think that all that knowledge is just so they can have a platform to declare to everybody everything that they know and others don't. And I'll tell you something. That is a tragic thing. And I can tell you something that I have definitely fairly you know, learned over 22 years now of, of senior pastoral ministry is pulpit people are easy to find. They're easy to find. Developing humble, loving servants, that's difficult. Pulpit people, easy to find. There are lots of people who love to teach. There are lots of people who would love to stand up, to share in front of a small group, a big group. Pulpit people are easy to find. Developing people who love people and are willing to be humble servants, that's the difficult thing. Many are glad to declare their insights, and yet I have found over the years there are many who love to teach, and some even are who very gifted teachers. But they're about the most lazy Christians I know. But they're very gifted teachers. And to me, that's sad. Think about it. Jesus knew everything, right? Is there anybody who had more knowledge than Jesus? Jesus knew everything. In John 13, who was the one that got up and started washing everybody's dirty, nasty feet? Jesus, right? Why everybody else was talking about all their spiritual ideas and maybe even complaining why the room stunk. Jesus in love got up and started serving people. 
while others were talking and sharing all their ideas. And God wants us to understand that, look, people don't really care how much I know until they know how much I care. And that's a good principle to remember. Show people that you love them, demonstrate love to them, and you will build an avenue for their receptivity to then want to hear from you because you demonstrate that love first and foremost. Paul says as well in this verse, though I have all faith, he says, so that I could move mountains. Imagine that, faith to move mountains, rearrange mountain ranges. The idea there is perhaps you have such great faith, you can connect with the power of God and see mountain moving things take place. I mean, the idea here is you're someone who can be used very powerfully by God, very gifted in your influence, but that's not all that matters because, as I said, you can be a very gifted person and you can be used by God to do mountain-moving, powerful things and yet all the while not even really love people. You're just a very gifted person, a very charismatic person. We should always, always remember this important spiritual truth. Giftedness is not a measure of spirituality. Giftedness is not a measure of spirituality. You know what a measure of spirituality is? Love. Love. Because the fruit of the Spirit is love. There can be people who are incredibly gifted, but they have no love in their hearts. And this is something that becomes the real complication of what Paul is trying to drive home in this chapter here. Think about it from this perspective. It was not God's power that directed him to graciously remove the mountain of all of my sin. Really, it wasn't. It wasn't God's power that directed him to remove the mountain of my sin. It was God's love that directed him to remove the mountain of my sin. It was the love of God, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. In other words, it was his love that made him exercise the power to remove the mountain of our sin, and that is the proper pattern. The most powerful force is not power, it's love, because love is a powerful force that will motivate people to do powerful things and pray in powerful ways and make us do whatever it takes in acts of sacrifice and servanthood. And the way I look at it is this way. If I don't have love, nothing else really is of much value. The Bible always reminds me of. So it's kind of like an expensive car without gas, right? You can have an expensive 40, 50, 60. I don't know how much expensive cars cost. I never had one. You can have a really nice expensive car. But if it has no gas, what's the point? You may be able to walk all around and go, whoa, whoa, that's impressive. Right, but it doesn't do anything. It's just sitting there. Its whole purpose, which is to help people get from point A to point B, is doing nothing because it has no gas in it. That's kind of the idea of you can have an incredibly impressive, gifted, powerful, useful person, but if they don't have love, is the gas in the engine driving what's going on. He says, ultimately, in that situation, if I don't have love, Paul says, I'm nothing, man. I'm nothing. I bring nothing to God, and I bring nothing to others. Paul concludes verse 3 in the section saying, and though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, great generosity, though I give my body to be burned, he says, but have not love, it profits me nothing. So here Paul concludes showing us that even great amounts of giving 
and personal sacrifice are of no real value if the underlying factor for doing such is not love. You see what he says there? Though I bestow not just some of my goods. What's Paul say? Okay, just make sure you're still awake there. <laughs> All. Paul says, I can give away everything I own, all my goods to feed the poor. That's called generous giving. That's called sacrificial giving. Paul says, I can give away great amounts of wealth, offer large financial gifts to help the less fortunate, do practical works to help people who are struggling, the poor, widows, orphans. And he says, be involved in all these acts of service and giving and engaged in ministry, but yet not even have love behind why I'm doing it. Or he says, I could give my body to be burned. That's a strong image of great personal sacrifice. Literally giving your body to the fire to be burned, willing to die the ideas for some good or godly cause. The idea of being extremely dedicated and personally sacrificial. But he says, Yet I do such things, if I do them without love, it profits me nothing. See, from God's viewpoint, God says, despite what you gave and all the sacrifice you made, it doesn't have value from heaven's perspective. Because love was not the reason for it, or it wasn't done in a loving way. And think about it again. People can give away vast amounts of money and not love the people they give money to. Right? I mean, that's common sense. There are people who give away vast amounts of money for a tax write-off. There are people who give away vast amounts of money, and they do it because it makes them feel good about themselves. Right? They live like a wretch, but then they give a bunch of money away in a charitable way to some organization because then they feel better about themselves. Or some people give away vast amounts of money just so they can brag about how much money they gave away. It has nothing to do with loving people they gave the money to. So we can give money and have no love behind what we're doing. It's a very easy thing to do. It's also easy to do great works, even good works, even be very sacrificial and dedicated in the work that we do, yet do it without love as the motivator. You know how I can illustrate that? That's what most people do with their job, right? People work their jobs, the place they work. They don't necessarily love their boss. They don't necessarily love their customers, but they're very dedicated. They're hardworking. They're diligent. They're dedicated. They make great sacrifices in their job, but they do it because they need a paycheck and because they got to pay their mortgage. They don't do it because they love people. They don't, oh, I love my customers. That's why I go in every day. Man, I love my customers. You don't have to have love in your heart to be a hard worker to be dedicated, to be diligent. The point is, it's possible to work hard, to be faithful, and to be sacrificial in a duty, and yet not have love in your heart. And God's reminding us that can also translate into spiritual service. We can be a very dedicated servant of the Lord. We can be very faithful, very sacrificial, yet if we're doing it and we've lost love in our heart, then really we have began to lose the main thing. We're missing the main point. If love for people is not the motivator, then it becomes worthless to God. Now that's searching. That's convicting. And I'll tell you this, I firmly believe, I think it also begins to lose its impact. I think when people serve the Lord 
and love is missing from their heart, a dynamic begins to miss and something begins to go absent from the ultimate spiritual impact of what's being done. Because somehow, in the way God's established things, people can tell the difference between someone who's trying to exercise and show love in what they're doing and someone who's just trying to put on a spiritual show. And, And I think the impact is lost. And so God says, look, the impact is love is the reason and love is the manner in which it's being done. That is absolutely crucial. Again, it offers no benefit to God. It offers no benefit to others. And as I said, these verses, I've hovered in them many times over my life to keep my heart in check, to bring myself back in alignment. These are searching truths, and we don't want to miss what matters most. What matters most to God as it pertains to operating in spiritual gifts, serving the Lord, what matters most, the primary focus is what? You guys got it. Let's stand together.